Hey, Josh. Hey, Nate. How are you doing this week? Doing good. And we've got some guests with us today. Yeah, I'd like to welcome Jane and Benedict, founders of UserList, to the show. Good afternoon for both of you. Hey. Hello. Excited to be here. Thanks. I, I stated that because it's morning for us. For for Nate and Josh, we are at 10 a.m. Eastern time, and I know both of you are both of you are from Europe. So so welcome. And both Jane and Benedict are SaaS Bootstrap founders, podcasters, and are also part of Tiny Seed Batch Two. And UserList is a email marketing automation for SaaS. But what I love about it is their elegance and simplicity with their solution. Is that how you guys would describe yourselves? That's exactly how we describe ourselves these days. Um, an email platform that focuses on SaaS needs. So that's the selling pitch at the moment. Awesome. And we can talk how okay. that has changed over years later. <laughs> yeah, that, that could be an interesting interesting topic to cover. So user list and I guess Jane and Benedict have reached a significant milestone in the past couple of months, reaching over 100,000 in ARR. And they are both they are sorry, <laughs> they're always helping other founders share their stories. So I thought it'd be fun to have them on our show so they can share theirs. Nate, did you want to start with some oh, sorry, we could cut this part. But my co host Nate will be the first in line to talk to them about how they got started. And I'll be asking questions about the later part of their user list journey. <laughs> Great. Well, it's good to have you guys on and thanks for joining us, even though it's afternoon. I know that must be kind of weird for you guys. So, so how did, I guess I'm, I'm curious, like where things kind of got started and like what was kind of the, the seed for user list. Maybe Benedict, do you have some, some thoughts on that? Sure. Yeah. So UserList started in 2017, I believe. At the time, I was working for Jane as a consultant, basically doing all the development work on her uh, first product called Tiny Reminder. Okay. And I don't really like I don't really know anymore, but for some reason it she decided to sell it. And it was a longer process and in the end it didn't quite work out the way she hoped hoped it would work out, but she got rid of it and then during the during the evolution of Tiny Reminder, there was always this need of like how do we well for one see who's using the product, who are our users, and like how do we communicate with them? And at the time Intercom was around, Trip was around, like all those tools were around, but like for for a company or a product just starting out, it was quite expensive and a bit unwieldy to use. So Jane was like, okay, I need something that will solve this. And of course, like this wasn't in the scope of like building it firsthand, but once a tiny reminder was off her plate, I feel like she felt motivated to, to put something new and asked me and our third co-founder, Claire Solentrop, to team up with her to to basically build this tool that was missing during the Tiny Reminder days. Is that a correct mm. representation of what happened, Jane? That's great. I, it's so nice to see, to hear the story shared by you in real time, because, you know, we always talk about this in different shows, but now, yeah, it's exactly like that. I'm super lucky that uh, you said yes back then, four years ago, and... Uh, Claire, I, I can't even imagine because uh, we have worked together by then, but Claire was basically just new as online and she said yes and stuck with us for, she did a great deal of work in the early stages with us. So we had like all kinds of great talent on board. Mm -hmm. I'm a UI UX person by trade. Benedict's a brilliant engineer and uh, Claire is a brilliant marketer. So it was like all ingredients for success. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like a lot of the idea was coming kind of from you, Jane. Is that correct? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe. <laughs> so like you had your, your tiny reminder uh, thing and, and what, what was that focused at? Was that focused at SaaS companies as well? Or? I think the, 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 the biggest driver behind UserList was that I made so many mistakes with tiny reminder that I was so eager to fix them with the next product and make it truly useful and truly an essential business tool because mm -hmm. tiny reminder was form builder with ba baked in email notifications and it was so vague and so vitamin-y, you know, as opposed to painkiller products. I was like done with the productivity tools. Let's do something hardcore. And there we go Four years building a hardcore product. I really, <laughs> we did pick a hard battle, didn't we, Benedict? I, I, I sometimes feel like we overcompensated a little bit in that that regard. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not just an email do, do you platform. Mean picking the hard, 
not just an email platform, but like hardcore behavior based email platform. <laughs> I'm making gestures yeah, nobody tall, can tall, see, but it's yeah. a tall it's <laughs> it's a tall order, right? <laughs> yeah. Like it's a lot it's complicated and it was interesting because even before the call we talked about recording software and things like that and how you said before Skype was being used was like your status quo and now we're there's all kinds of different software out there now to do these real-time recordings and it almost like and and you can correct me if I'm wrong but it almost seems like when intercom and all these earlier ones hit a certain inflection point you know they started moving up market they started complicating their product they started to kind of lose their original just like core value proposition and it just got further and further away from kind of the i, I don't want i don't want to sound this wrong simpler user but not not that they're like not smart users but they're just have have less have less robust needs per se and and i feel like at that time it seemed like the perfect time for you to go like hey why is this going why is this harder than it should be why is this a you know why is this becoming more problematic when it should be relatively simple and that that to me seems like the impetus and where where you kind of got started with user list exactly you're describing the classic you know life cycle of a product spans over 10 years plus you know from being born to serving to, to crossing the, the chasm to the popular market and then going to enterprise that's what intercom's been doing recently mm-hmm crazy so you you kind of got started as a way to redo all of the mistakes that you were doing before with with the tiny reminder and it sounds like you were kind of trying to solve your own problem was there as part of that that discovery were you looking at other companies that were having similar problems or were you pretty much focused on well i have this problem so i'm going to solve this problem we were thinking we are entering an existing market. Like we did, didn't have any doubts that people need this tool. Claire, however, did a great round of research interviews before Benedict has even written a line of code. Mm. So we did follow the playbook to a certain extent. Yes. We also did pre-orders and all this jazz before going on to beta. Cool. That's cool. So you talked a bit about Claire, and now it's just the two of you doing user lists. Would you like? Could you tell us a bit about what happened there and how that that kind of came to be? Benedict, you want to go? Sure. So, yeah, as I said, like she was very active in the early days. I basically did all like the customer research, did a ton of interviews, had produced like a ton of useful like analysis of what people actually want and what the problems are. And it was super helpful in the early days. But the thing was, like, we've been, we, we all three of us had been doing this on the side. So we all had, like, our consulting businesses. So things moved slowly. I think, like, when we first got started, our goal was, hey, we will be at 5K MRR within six months or so. <laughs> and, like, it took us two years, three years, something like that. So it was a long and painful path. And... At the time, there was also running, like she was running her consultancy business. She, she was also running a Forget the Funnel, like a online, well, education community for marketers and user lists on the side. And like two of those endeavors were generating revenue and uh, generating income for her and user list was not. So honestly, at the time, I was already wondering how is she managing all of that at the same time? Like two projects at the same time is already a handful. How does she manage to do three? And yeah, it turns out she was she barely <laughs> handling it and uh, she yeah. had to cut one. And sure, when you have like three projects and two of them are making money, which one do you cut? Yeah, of course, like the one that doesn't make money. So she basically stepped down from her co-founder role into more of an advisor role. And that also meant that she basically yeah, slowed down her vesting of, of her shares. And eventually we phased that out as well. And now she's basically still an, uh, still an, an owner, but not on the board anymore, not not involved in the day-to-day anymore it's just yeah jane and me yeah yeah so it sounds like it's it sounds like it's been quite a quite a slog like you've been at this for how many years now you said 2013 so that's what like eight years 2017 17 
I think it was October 2017 when when we first like got together and talked about this. Mm -hmm. But we only launched in I think it was August 2019. So like just from original idea to launch product was almost two years. Okay. Yeah. So you've been out out in the open for about two years. Yeah. We had this uh, beta phase for quite a while when we already had a working product and we charging, like by the time we launched, we had been charging people for roughly a year already, but we weren't confident enough to, to call it a day because we're always reliable from, from early on and, but never really feature complete enough to call it a finished product. So we were kind of growing in scope until we reached this point when we were ready to announce ourselves to the public. Going back to the co-founder story, there's so many lessons for anyone who is starting out new product. We had a, an infrastructure in place that allowed for Claire to relatively painless quit her like commitment because we had a formal agreement in place. We had tried to describe different kind of scenarios when uh, either of, one of us would quit. We had vesting in place, which is, to be honest, before starting Uselist, I hadn't uh, really learned, known much about vesting, but it's a great way of rewarding founders with equity gradually instead of granting them like their shares entirely from day one. And if you can do that, absolutely do that with your founder because it protects everyone and uh, makes it fair. Even if uh, the relationship goes sour, you can still refer to your documents and uh, be civilized about it. And uh, with Claire, we remained friends and she's a great advisor for us. And if we didn't have that on the shore before starting off, probably could have been different. So. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. great advice. Because I guess like when you're starting your your little company, you know, doing all the documents and stuff like that can sometimes seem like, oh, like seriously, we got to get the lawyers involved just for this. But it looks like for you guys that really paid off. We had just a document without lawyers, pretty free form based on some template. It was like an unofficial official co-founder agreement. Okay. <laughs> and, and then when it, when we incorporated, we gradually replaced this informal document with more formal chapters of incorporation and things like that. But even a written document is, is good enough. It has terms in it. So mm -hmm. something you agree upon. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's great advice. That's uh, that's good to hear. So I guess you, yeah, definitely the, the, the number of, companies that die because of founder conflict either early on with you know division of responsibility sounds like you covered those bases there pretty well and and especially with the vesting thing like once once resources become i guess the, the dynamics change in resources either time like you had factors with with claire but also even with money right like all of a sudden there let's say the business is doing reasonably well and everyone has kind of different needs and then all those those all those types of things can really lead to a lot of like founder founder conflict or co-founder conflict so seems like you put all those things in place and it was interesting because you said you know you didn't know much about them before but you at least had the foresight to think through some of these things like okay how how could how could this work what are the what are the scenarios that could could end this and that's something like Nate said is not necessarily a common thing so people are so excited with the idea so excited to want to get building and it's like oh we'll sort that out later and it just seems like an annoyance at the time but but uh, that was very good on you guys so it's a bit like prenuptial agreement you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> sounds about right so you're talking a bit about getting started and stuff like that so like you mentioned Claire did a bunch of uh, user interviews and that sort of thing. So how how did you get your first number of clients? Like the you know outside of family and friends and that sort of thing. Maybe Jane, you we could talk to that question. <laughs> we had a lot of friends. <laughs> like we got most of we, our like we we did an early early access launch, so to say, or a pre order. We did pre orders, yeah. That's what we did. So basically, when we, we once we figured out what we are roughly going to do, um, we put up a landing page roughly describing what what this is about. And did we post a blog post? I think we had a blog post up with like 
here's what we're going to build and uh, this is the problems we're going to solve. And if you want to do this, you can sign up here for, I think we had several tiers of like how many, depending on the size of like your email list, you could basically buy six months of user list at a discounted rate. I don't remember the exact details, but we had like several packages and put them up. And yeah, to be honest, like most of the people who bought it were friends and family. <laughs> okay. There's no shame in that. Um, it's like an angel round. <laughs> well, sort of, yeah. <laughs> a very tiny one. And I think we set a goal that we wanted at least five pre-orders. Uh, or, or no, we wanted 10 pre-orders and in the, in the end just got five. But we're still, like, it was motivation enough to to keep going. And I think of those five pre-orders, only one of them actually ended up really using it and using I'm it I'm pretty sure we had uh, 10 pre-orders and uh, then handful of people did adopt because i can even like count them in my head but the, the, the i'm pretty sure um, we just said five but whatever <laughs> <laughs> the philosophy behind that is even if you do pre-orders uh, not everybody will actually use the tool uh, and that's okay. i think the, the very early days before we announced pre-orders there were like six months maybe a couple months there was just a sign-up form on the site without even any content at all and then there was a landing page for a while, like a two-pager website, basically. And then we grew to the blog, and it was always about sharing our journey with the email list, growing the email list. And then by the time we had pre-orders a few months later, we had a little list to launch it to. And we, of course, kept pushing through like our personal channels because like, uh, we all have our own little email list, Twitter audience, uh, whatever not. So we always try to leverage that. But with SaaS, it really doesn't translate to signups immediately. You should know. Like, yeah. Having an audience does not guarantee your customers right away. Yeah, for sure. And like, did you do any kind of outreach style, th style things or like, you know, going out of your way to find customers and direct them to your landing page? Or was it more just, you know, it's mention it to your Twitter followers and here's our landing page? In our case, we came with with our own audiences, so we leveraged that. Yeah. But I imagine any way is good as, as, as soon as you can make it happen. Oh, for sure, yeah. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to say whether it's good or bad. I'm just curious as to what you guys did. Cool. Did most of your audience come from your podcast? Was that kind of the, the bulk of your audience, Jane? Ooh, it's a separate story. UI breakfast <laughs> mailing list uh, grew over like six, seven, ten years. Um, oh, wow. Pretty large. And then the podcast started taking over. So originally it was uh, an audience around books and email courses. Now it's kind of all boiled down to podcast audience, but it goes hand in hand. Not necessarily just the podcast, but right now the only part of UI breakfast that I actively run is the biweekly show. That's like the heart of it. So, mm -hmm. cool. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know there was an email list. I didn't know there was a story before UI Breakfast, um, the podcast. There were so. different little steps on how this email list grew. One of the big milestones was uh, me doing a project uh, together with Envision in 2015, I think, when we when I wrote a book for them, and that brought like thousands of new users to my list. It was life changing in terms of growth. I think it took from there. That's that's really sweet. Like to be able to leverage your personal brand that way. That's that's really helpful. That's cool. So if you look back at those early days and kind of getting off the ground and all that, is there anything that if you could go back, you would do differently? Benedict, you wanna <laughs> you wanna do this one? <laughs> that's a tough one. I mean, there is something I'd probably do differently, and that would be like. Pick an existing market, but maybe not an as crowded market as like email automation or marketing automation. But back then it was a very deliberate decision because I think one of the problems that Jane and me kind of realized with Time Reminder is that it's like a, it was basically a new type of product or a new type of market and like people didn't really know what to think of it. And that mm. made it, made it part really hard. So as I said earlier, like I feel like we overcompensated a little bit with being like, okay, next the next thing is something. Yeah, we're doing something where we know there's a market, 
and where we know there's this, there, there are players in the market and hopefully the market is big enough to just support one one new tool in there. And yes, it kind of works, but it's also like there's a lot of competition out there. And uh, like as we already hinted at, I feel like up until a couple months ago, maybe a year ago, we were mostly playing catch up in terms of like adding all the features that people just expect from a tool like this these days. So looking back, maybe we should have picked something that's that has an established market, but maybe a little bit less competition or a little bit earlier on stuff like just emerging market or something like that i think my my answer to that would be similar to benedict's but would come from a different angle i think it's still fine to be another help desk of sorts but adopting a help desk is much easier than adopting a behavior-based email automation tool and uh, if i would think about a new product today together with benedict because we are struggling with this together <laughs> is we would prefer product that's much easier to adopt that you can set up in a couple clicks because there there are points in the funnel that need to happen in order for your product to be successful and one is being wide enough in the top in terms of audience then being able to attract them but then in the bottom it's about ease of adoption and Founders out there underestimate the power of this so much. If you have, if your product is easy to adopt, you can convert people from I don't know an ad in a couple of days because they, it's easy for them to get started. With our tool, it's it's really sticky. It's high retention, but adoption it requires like team effort, mm-hmm. and that's just the reality. It requires some knowledge, team effort, and it's a hard battle <laughs> because of that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I could see that. And you kind of mentioned that, like, the the being in the crowded market is very different from being in the the lone educational style way of talking, right? Like with your your tiny reminder, you're educating everyone why they need it. Whereas here, you're trying to you're trying to do differentiation, it seems like how has that been for you? Because like, you've you had Claire as a marketer for a while, but now you're both not, you know, officially marketing people, I guess. So how has that kind of worked out for you? Uh, maybe. Yes, we do have an official marketing person here on the call. <laughs> it's like, it's, um, it's basically Benedict technical and me marketing. Okay. Uh, I cannot imagine in sane world how one person, one solo founder can do both because it's like two full-time jobs for real. So <laughs> there you go, Josh, you're, you're got a, got a good job there. <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad it's not those days anymore. <laughs> but one thing I wanted to clue in too, I guess, I guess one of the statements that you made about you know ease of adoption was really interesting because like for our product, it's relatively easy to adopt, but at the same time, like to keep churn down and keep other things, like we do a lot of have to do a lot of customer success to get people to launch to get people to open up we get it but we also have to do a lot of like lead segmentation too and lead scoring to make sure we're anyone that is interested because i could put up something like hey do you you know you want to expand your word of mouth and people are like okay <laughs> um and we get those but on the on the flip side the qualification and the churn reduction is where our efforts are so i would probably say the opposite of you where i'm looking for more stickiness more more other things in our product to build in but i think the truth is probably somewhere in between right it'd be it'd be nice to have both and not (laughs) and i know your mindset because mine is similar the other way is like to want to now overcorrect on the other side and it sounds like kind of like you know some some of the things you guys said about starting starting user list versus tiny reminder kind of polarized you in another direction which also happened to me with with Ubernote, which was like an early notion type of thing like way before notion <laughs> so but that overcorrection is definitely it's it's i think it's good because eventually we'll all kind of end up in the right sweet spot but, but yeah so but i did want to ask you a couple other questions about more i guess more about your significant milestone so kind of speeding up the story what what were the what were the big things that kind of got you from that you know i guess it was about two and a half years ago or so once you were publicly launched and out there, I think you did tiny seed and like, what other, what other things kind of got you to this milestone in between there? Yeah. So I think 
milestone-wise, like we had the launch that was a big one, of course. But I think the milestone that had like the biggest effect on everything was in uh, early 2020, we decided to go full-time at least for a while. And I think our initial goal was to just do this full-time for like six months, live live from our savings and just focus a little bit more because like the entire, like before that we were doing consulting on the site and product on the site. Like it was always, you, you'd obviously context switching and feel like not getting anything meaningful and dull on any, on, on any of those fronts. So that was the first goal. We did. Um, no, but it, it, was, it was better than you're saying. <laughs> well, at least it felt that way. Like, sure, we made it progress. Was hard. Yes, yeah. we didn't. Like, none of my customers were, like, consulting clients were upset that I didn't produce value or something like that. But it's, like, you certainly notice that you're not as productive as you'd be when you focus on just one thing. So that was a big decision. And... Luckily, like we got accepted into Tiny Seed at the time, so that allowed us to extend those six months into, well, basically until today. Like for now, like we are still full time on just user lists, so, and that definitely made a difference because it finally allowed us to, well, yeah, be be quicker and like be more focused and just make actual progress in shorter amount of time. I guess that was, yeah, that was the biggest milestone so far. The 100K ARR was a nice milestone in terms of uh, it's a nice round number, but it didn't really change anything, to be honest. Like the business is still the same after that. So I feel like as you get older, milestones get less exciting. You're like 99K MRR was pretty great too. <laughs> yeah may maybe but i guess yeah i guess like the, in a, in in a sense like mrr is just a vanity metric of sorts at least i'm sure it pays your bills and stuff like that but i think there's there's more excitement and like getting to profitability and stuff like that than it is to cross a certain number because in the end that number doesn't mean anything like we could we could have like 10 10k mrr and uh 200k in expenses and it would be it would be a pretty shitty milestone to be honest <laughs> yeah fair enough it's like saying you know page views on your websites versus actual like interests and prospects and people that turn into customers because you could have a a great like uh, article that generates all kinds of activity but for the wrong market for the wrong wrong people that type of thing yeah but maybe like you're you're talking about the the numbers itself don't mean that much. But like what what does mean a lot for you guys? Like what what makes you feel really good at the end of the day that you've done something good here? I guess for me, it's just like seeing customers solve their problems. Like as cheesy as it sounds, like when people start using the product and yeah, get up and running within a couple of days and like actually seeing returns from their efforts and like less churn or like better activation rates or anything like that. That's the exciting part where it feels like, okay, now I get why we're doing this and why people are paying us. And those people are usually those that, that stick around and are fine paying a monthly fee for this. So yeah, that's still the exciting part for me. What about you? It's Jane? also exciting to uh, call the shots in terms of, of the product for both of us. Because the downside of client work is that you ultimately don't have a say in the product direction most times until, unless you are a product manager somewhere. But here we can make decisions about sometimes opinionated decisions. And of course, comes with a very limited resources kind of angle, but we can still call the shots and that's exciting. And another aspect has been starting to find people and delegating and growing our team. We just have been lately working on, you know, changing our Slack, for example, from a place where two co-founders hang out towards a more structured place where team members can hang out. And it's exciting to transition to this company growth phase, as Josh mentioned before. I did, I, you've added some team members? We have uh, currently two people helping us with marketing. One is podcast manager, Dan, and another one is Krista, our marketing manager. They're not full-time, they're remote, but we treat them as uh, team members and that's exciting. That's... Yeah, definitely. That's a, that's a good milestone to have, give you some relief from some of the things so you can be more strategic or be 
again, out there in front doing the things that essentially you have more leverage doing? It's a delicate balance for a bootstrapper company. Like I can recommend any day that, yeah, sure, you shouldn't be doing everything yourself and uh, hire, delegate, but, but the resources are limited. So, but you still can't do everything yourself. That's a way to nowhere. So this uh, delicate growth that happens, it's really precious and it's great that it does happen. Yeah, for myself, I always put like, I've always had a number in my head about my time. Like in the in the early parts, when I first started hiring people, it was like, okay, am I, can I can I do this two times faster? And over over the years, it has changed. So where like, I think now I'm mostly thinking, if I can be five times faster, then that's still worthwhile for me to kind of step in and do something for the most part. I mean, there's obviously caveats and things like that. Once you, fortunately, I was able to put some people in place for the engineering, so I just kind of stay out of it because at that point you're just sort of maybe creating a mess by by and disrupting other people's flow or other teams' flow. But that that was helpful for me over time, like just making sure that I was staying checked. I just recently took an, a management course that was not rocket science, uh, but it was very helpful and timely for me personally as I was you know, managing marketing processes, is that it's based on the Gartner uh, model where the, there are two modes in the business, so change and run. So the change is when you introduce new things and, and run is where you have established processes. And it doesn't make... So yeah, it doesn't make to... Uh, establish anything until you figure out what works and that's the change but when you do the run then you tighten the processes you make them faster and more efficient and different metrics and different values apply to each of those phases it's good to distinguish them in your business yeah definitely and i found also with 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 people on your team some people are good at some things versus others some people are good at the change some people are good at the optimization some people are good at the the running and there's no fault in that. I feel like in definitely in entrepreneurship, sometimes out there, people are like, you need to be doing all these things and you don't have to do them all, or you need to find the right people, like the right balance, like between, you know, you two right now with, with engineering and it's almost like engineering and everything else. <laughs> but that's, that's sort of, I think the role Jane, you end up playing as well. There is this whole spectrum of opportunities these days for SaaS founders. It doesn't have to be, well, it can be yourself or you can charm brilliant team members to join you and work for equity. Like in our case, <laughs> we're we've been mm -hmm. doing it for equity, but you can also go raise a little angel round. You can go, go raise a bunch of VC money and spend it in different kinds of rhythms, hiring different kinds of talent and can be combination of different kinds of resources. So just be open to using, choosing what, what's a good fit for your personality and for your business model for your product. Cause some, some products are hard, like B2C stuff is probably hard to raise with, you know, with a little bit of bootstrapper money, then you probably need VC or something like that. So just be open. Right, right. So speaking of raising, so I think I've saw maybe it was something in a, I don't know if it was a Twitter thread or something else related to that, but you did the tiny seed investment, but I think I saw you might be looking to raise additional money. Is that, is that something? Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, we are approaching the close for our angel round at the moment. And the cause for this is that we are looking to hire more developer talent on board because that's the only thing we can't really afford with the bootstrapper model because engineering talent is in high demand these days. So we're doing that to support our subtle pivot to uh, full stack marketing platform for SaaS. So up to this date, we've been focusing on customer email only, and we've been so stubborn about it, but we can't be anymore because the customers say <laughs> that they want all their SaaS email in one place, like in the same words over and over again. So that's what we're making happen so that founders and product people can have marketing leads and customer emails in the same segmented list, which they can um, run consistently and useless and not juggle the leads anymore. Like 
MailChimp for this, Intercom for that, and the giant like crazy mess. We want to avoid that and uh, help people run their email list, you know, holistically. Interesting. So Benedict has some challenges up up his alley, I think, in terms of building out more CRM related features, all these other things. I know you added a big one recently. Was it like the company entity into into a user list? Yeah, this was a recent change. That was basically the last thing we did before pivoting, sort of. Like these days, I'm working on interesting features like double opt in and form builders and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's not the cool. most exciting uh, work, but it's it has some edge cases that you only discover when you really start getting deep into those those things. <laughs> We're really going at this backwards because the typical journey is an ESP who runs, who, you know, supports a simple marketing list. They want to add more customer properties and behavior-based stuff, and they all just drown in complexity. In our case, we already have the complexity in the hard part built very well built and like proven. And we also have broadcasts and everything. We just need these, you know, the intake, the marketing forms, double opt-in added on top of it to make it a marketing platform. So it's not that challenging as it would be for, I don't know, I'm struggling because everybody has already added it. Let's say MailChimp didn't have it. If they decided to edit on, it would be challenging. Also, for the company accounts, we, we have a gigantic benefit of being in a relatively early stage company so that Benedict can implement those data model decisions without huge stress and he, he's already done that uh, because if customer.io decided to introduce company accounts they would probably have much bigger challenge at their stage of growth for example is that no, is, definitely... it? Is, it, is the correct representation <laughs> of what's going on <laughs> maybe i mean it's hard to tell look behind the curtains of other companies but yeah i feel like we did a lot of the heavy lifting in the early days because we always knew that we wanted this automation platform that's like that cares about data models and stuff like that. So we always had that in place. And now it's basically adding layers around that core versus, yeah, just starting with an email list and then trying to add like the complexity on top of that. But who knows? Like we, we only have experience with this particular approach. Maybe the other one is easier, harder. Who knows? Sounds like your typical engineering problem. Who knows what's behind it until you start working on it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, Jane, I think you made a good point kind of going at it a little bit different. I th I, I, I'd agree with you. You probably just have a lot more, I would say, built up potential energy because you've done all this legwork underneath the platform. And I think it's also interesting with this day and age with, you know, product-led growth being kind of more on the forefront, more people, I think, thinking thinking product and starting in there first. Obviously, a lot of our entrepreneur friends and bootstrappers and stuff kind of start in that area. But if they're like getting, using your product first to do, okay, the sell them upgrades or communicate based off of events all in the customer uh, data side and communications, and then later on it's e it is easier probably to add on or switch out like the marketing side which i think you said the other way like if people started on the marketing side with all these emails they they kind of go this opposite direction where i feel like like a funnel <laughs> they're going to go down and be like okay only a small segment of their customers could use all this customer data stuff are they a SaaS product all these other things in terms of like segmentation but for you it's like well everyone's going to need marketing everyone's going to need to talk to one at least one level above the customer data side so it's like the features for you could could apply to anyone that is already a customer so your expansion should be a little more natural and just like hey you love using our product and its simplicity and its elegance and you don't want to get into all the other stuff out there that has these Shopify plugins, all this other stuff you don't need as a as a SaaS, but you just want to focus on like clean customer communication and and manage it all here. I could see that as a as an interesting angle as you guys grow, at least continuing to upsell your existing customers, like you mentioned your your churn and your expansion. So it's like how can you continue expanding on your customer base once you have them? 
secretly, we also want to solve our adoption problem because people who are coming in for uh, their plain launch email list, they will need just the basic installation steps. And then if they feel enthusiastic about adding behavior data or anything like that, they can do that. But they, by that time, they would already be userless customers and in the platform. So it's, we are hoping that's, that's a smart move. Let's see what time shows. <laughs> that makes sense. That seems like an easier commit to get started too, like exactly. upload a list and things like that. Exactly. So, cool. Yeah. One of the other things I did want to ask, I know, Benedict, you've talked a little bit about this in the past. I'm not sure if it's on your podcast. It was definitely on the the one of my, uh, when I dropped in on your call maybe a couple of weeks ago <laughs> when you had like your live streaming stuff going on or office hours, I believe, maybe. Yeah, it office but hours. But you, yeah. you talked some about the expansion and about um, the effects on your revenue when you kind of changed your... I guess, was it the pricing model or how you were billing? Uh, yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit more about that and, and kind of what, what insights did you draw from making those changes? Yeah, so one thing we realized over time was like expansion revenue is great and like participating in the success <laughs> of our customers is also a pretty nice way to grow your business because you essentially, you end up growing even though you don't do anything, assuming that they don't churn. But like, uh, given everything works, like when your customers are successful, you get to be successful. And like, we started out with a classic like tiered pricing model in the early days. I think we had the cheapest plan was 49, then it was like 99, 229, 499 or something like that. And we had like limit, like, our, our value metrics are basically user storage and user list. And we had like packages, I think it was 1,000, 5,000, 25,000, 50,000 or something like that. And over time, we realized that at those inflection points, when people would like hit, hit their plan limit, there would be a lot of anxiety on our side because we hadn't like implemented automatic upgrades. So it's always like, you should probably email them and ask them to upgrade to the higher plan. But it's it's an okay step from 49 to 99 but you could already tell from 99 to 229 like we lost a lot of people in that process because they were like yeah it's a good tool but suddenly i'm supposed to pay pay like more than double what i'm paying now even though i just added two new users compared to last week that was a hard was a hard thing to explain. So sometime, I think it was November or something last, last November. year. Last that, November, that dream month when we, when we did this finally. <laughs> yeah, like we, we finally sat down and tried to figure out like how can we make this easier for all of us. Like for us, uh, because like, as we said, like because we had so many people just cancel during plan upgrades, we dreaded upgrading people and because of that, we're basically leaving money on the table because they, they were above the plan limits, but we wouldn't upgrade them because we were afraid to lose them. So we decided to change the pricing model entirely. We, we're still using users, number of users stored in user list as the value metric. But instead of having tiers, we just have one base price for like 5,000 users. And then we charge basically per additional 1,000 users. And we also implemented like automatic billing adjustments. So now we're using the high watermark of users for a given month to calculate the rate for the next month. And that part, like that number or that that price is adjusted, like increased and decreased based on your number of users and how that changes over time. And what that changed was, for one, of course, now it automatically grows. We don't have to go back in there and adjust it. But also the increments are like much more, well, they're done reasonable. Yeah, they're much more reasonable, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. So now, like right. when you when you cross like another thousand users, like your bill just increased by ten dollars instead of doubling or whatever. And I mean, yes, in a way, like people are still paying the same, but it's kind of like boiling, uh, like the frog in the boiling water. Like uh, they don't notice the increase that much. <laughs> It's also fair, right. like it's the jumps are fair, not steep. Yeah. They're not overpaying if they need less than they pay less. So yeah, it so, sounds like, like 
of all the stuff we did last year, like, yeah, I mentioned going full-time. That was definitely the decision. But the second best thing we did was, like, changing the pricing model because, like, you can see in our growth rates that things just, like, are much more stable and steadier and, like, overall nicer these days because of that change. Well, I now have a have a thing to declare as the worst decision of last year, or maybe the best learning <laughs> <what's> experiment. <laughs> <laughs> we did have a nine dollar plan for for a few months last summer, and when we launched it, everything was perfectly reasonable. The idea was that we will bring early people on board who have less than hundred users. They will set user list up and then grow and expand, and we will everybody will make money and be happy. But <laughs> What we did was shooting our revenue in the foot for three months because everybody joined on the $9 plan instead of 49 So with every new user on board, we weren't incrementing our MRR at all, at least with the early ones. And also, it does not signify any commitment. So people either fail to adopt or churned as soon as they did adopt, or churn, but churned as soon as we upgraded them to the regular price. And um, overall, it's not a great signal. A tool that sends your critical business communications should cost money. And it's okay to put that money and the commitment and the work into setting it up. So when we removed it, we, it was a wonderful day. <laughs> and also, <laughs> when we did change that pricing in November, we also raised the baseline price from 49 to 99 And we also never looked back because, again, the time commitment, is absolutely comparable to that. So $99 is not a high price to pay for your critical business communications, but it signifies a commitment and also communicates quality, like a, a tool that makes puts you on the line with the big companies who can do powerful automation shouldn't cost $49, really. Even though when we started in 2017, the philosophy was to make it accessible, but uh, people who want to access good technology are okay with paying $99. And I'm pretty sure two years from now, we'll be starting from 300 and like looking at ourselves as fools, but <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> uh, so far, it seems to be a comfortable point to be at. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's a really good lesson. I think that was something I had to go through too in a similar, like you're not your own customer as much as you, in the beginning. Like you guys would pay a certain amount for software, but at the same time when you started, you know, like oftentimes you're not in the same mindset of your customers, even though you kind of think you are. And then it's like, oh, the difference is when they're at 10 employees or 20 employees and like, oh, $300 for a service. Okay. That's not a big deal. Like when you have that much in payroll, you're not thinking you're, yeah. And you do want to trust the level of service that you're, you're getting from a provider, but then coming from bootstrap roots, it's like, yeah, I mean, our first plans were, I think my first plan was $29 and <laughs> that lasted maybe six months before I realized and started to talk to people and see the value they were getting at. I'm like, oh, and the fact that I had to help explain the product, I was like, okay, let's Let's start moving this up a little bit because you get rave reviews and said, oh, someone, hey, I started using your software and we got like five referrals. It was worth like 20,000 in sales. So I'm like, why am I charging $20,000? <laughs> so, but, but it, it kind of quickly shifts your mind and going like, oh, wow, as a business owner, there's different decisions that start to go as you, as you kind of move up the chain. So, yeah. And as hard cool. as it sounds, um, like it turns out like... Early stage startups and bootstrappers. I mean, I love them all, but they're just not the best customers, to be honest. <laughs> like at, at least, like it's true. <laughs> money wise, like I, I, yeah, I love this community. I love being part of it, and yeah, but like so many, so many times, people sign up and then don't end up using it, or the thing fails, or whatever. And while I would just love to give them the product for free. I mean, in the end, we also have to pay our own bills and have a sustainable business. And it turns out that's really, really hard with that, just that segment of the market. Speaking of the initial question, what would you change next time? It's probably that our kind of business is extremely infrastructure heavy. We do store plenty of data. We do pay for 
email services that we use and uh, it's not like when we onboard a free user they're absolutely not free for us so we are not thinking to introduce free plan very soon at least cool cool I think usually we'd, we would wrap up with a question like, what would you do differently? But <laughs> since we've kind of covered a lot of that, we've covered some really good insights, I think, throughout the podcast that anyone getting started could could definitely draw from. But so what I will ask instead is, is there anything you guys would like to promote? You know, I know you have podcasts, any new features, other things, anything else you'd kind of like to, to talk to our audience about? We have a great podcast you should try listening to. It's called uh, Better Done Than Perfect and uh, did get a tattoo that says BDTP last wow. December because it's, it's a little bit of our motto with Benedict because we are recovering perfectionists. <laughs> so Better Done Than Perfect is a show for SaaS founders and product people and we have themes for different seasons. For example, season one was about user onboarding. Then we talked about customer success in season two. And now we're talking about uh, email automation. So I'm talking, I, I've booked like 10 amazing consultants and we discussed different aspects of our industry. We also put great effort into our show notes. We have Dan who is writing like executive recaps manually for each episode. So if you want to read or listen, go and tune in. Benedict, awesome. you want to pitch something? Benedict, pitch our Zappy integration. It's really good. <laughs> okay, so we <laughs> recently launched a Zapier integration. So we are planning to do more integrations this year, but we finally have a Zapier integration, which already connects us to like 3,000 tools or whatever. So if adoption and getting things set up has been a problem for you in the past, it shouldn't be anymore because now you can literally plug it into anything. So yeah, check it and out. Benedict's <laughs> really thorough when he does some, uh, when he ships something. So our Zapier integration, I don't know four triggers, eight actions or vice versa. So it's like really feature rich in terms of what you can do. So yeah, you can do almost check like it out. almost everything that you can use and user list to automate stuff. You can also send elsewhere to automate other things. So, yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show, sharing the news and even sharing the vision of what the future of user list is going like, to look like. Thanks so much Thanks for, for having, having us. us, Josh and Nate. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share with a friend. We're new to this podcasting thing, and we'd love to hear what you have to say. Tweet us at Searching for SAS on Twitter. That's Searching, the number four, SAS. Or send an email to searchingforsass at gmail.com. See you next week.